Tonight we're going to make the next installment in this series that we've been uh, teaching through on the Gospel of Mark, and, and it's going to be a, a very straightforward one tonight. Tonight's lesson is entitled, Jesus at the Crossroads. And, and I don't know, I hope you've been enjoying this series uh, on, on Mark. I, I hope you found it helpful. I know it's been uh, enjoyable for me to dig in, and it's been helpful in my life. We have, at this point in time, uh, Lord willing, we have four more lessons in our series on Mark, including this one tonight. So four and three more after this. Uh, next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at Jesus in the crosshairs. And then the week after that, we're going to look at Jesus on the cross. And then the good news is we finish with Jesus resurrected. That's the best news of all. And so if you have your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 8. We're going to read verses 27 through 38. We're going to read quite a few verses tonight. Um, and what we're going to do tonight in this study, it's going to be a little bit unusual, but I just want you to hang with me to the end because I think it will all make sense in the end. But let's read together in Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and, for, and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory, in, in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now, if you are taking notes, some of you, I, th you know, I think you, you, you probably are, some people I know do take notes, but if you're taking notes, I want to just sort of prepare you by asking you to do this. Uh, put three Roman numerals, just give yourself space in there so you can take some notes, put three Roman numerals down, Roman numeral one, two, and three. And then underneath each of those, you can put four uh, Arabic numbers, one, two, three, and four. So you've got, uh, where you've got the, four, the three Roman numbers, underneath those, four different categories underneath all of those. What that's going to do is just going to give us a structure that we're going to use tonight. We're going to be we're going to look at Jesus at the crossroads of his life and his ministry, and we're going to look at it from three different points of view. And each of these three viewpoints has four aspects which speak of the crossroads, and we're going to think of them in terms of a compass, north, south, east, and west, four different points on the compass. So, so we're going to see the crossroads of Jesus' life from three different perspectives, and each perspective uh, we'll see a, uh, at the crossroads, north, south, east, and west. Having said that, and I know that's really confusing, but it'll make sense. Having said that, let's begin 
with Roman numeral one. The, the fun part is over. This is Jesus at Caesarea Philippi. The fun part is over. The, the fun part is done. Jesus now takes his disciples into a northern area of Israel, into Caesarea Philippi. In that region, there are many, many caves, and, and there are many scholars who believe that Jesus and his disciples may have been in the mouth of a cave there at Caesarea Philippi, and, and, and that there he says to his disciples, actually on the way there, or, or no, while he's there, he says then basically, he says, now things change. Things are going to change. The fun part is over. We've We've healed the sick, raised the dead, cast out demons, walked on water, multiplied fish and bread. We, we have spoken miracles. We have preached. We've seen thousands moved. We've seen every kind of wonderful miracle, but that's past. We're now moving inexorably into an entirely new dimension, and it's going to challenge you, he tells them, like nothing you've ever experienced before. However, before we start that, he says, we must settle this one issue. Who am I? He says, if we get into this and you're not settled on that, then you're going to be shaken in your faith. You must have settled that before we get into this. And when people start being arrested and thrown into prison with stripes on their back and humiliation and torture and death and crucifixion, if you're struggling, <laughs> excuse me, if you're struggling to know who I am, in the midst of all of that, you're going to wilt under the pressure. So before we leave this cave here in the north of Israel and start down toward Jerusalem, let's settle this one thing. So the first point north is the question, who am I? Who am I? Mark 8, 28, look at it. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And that question must be resolved for every one of us. But Jesus, of course, we see Peter's answer in verse 29. Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Christ, Messiah, Savior. He says, I know who you are. You're the Christ of God. You're the one for whom we've been waiting. The hope of Israel, the seed of the woman, all of these things from Scripture. We know you're the one. Then the second point of the, on the compass, we'll, we'll call it east, is verse 31. And he, that is Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now I want you to just look at the words in verse 31. The, 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 the descriptive words, suffer, rejected, killed, and rise. You can look at it like this. There are three parts terror to one part blessing in that verse. Suffer, rejected, killed, rise. And, and, and this is a prophecy. The prophecy in Mark 8, 31 reveals uh, that, that Jesus, it, we, we already has, he already been, it already has been revealed that Jesus is the Christ of God, yes. But in verse 31, it, it reveals Jesus also as the suffering servant of Isaiah. We all know the, the passages from Isaiah. We, we quote them all the time where it says, uh, talks about the chastisement of our peace was upon him, all of these different things. And Jesus says, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm going to go through everything that I'm talking about. And now we're at the beginning. See, the, the truth is Jesus really, he has not suffered up until now, except for the minor rejection of being rejected at Nazareth at the very beginning of his ministry which really didn't cost him anything. They wanted to kill him, but he just walked right through him. 
And then, however, he, he, had, he had also suffered the rejection of his uh, ministry by his own family. However, you know, when your brothers and your sisters think you're a nutcase, but there are 10,000 people who are trying to touch the hem of your garment to be healed, that just sort of takes the sting out of that familial rejection. And he suffered the minor rejection of the towns around Capernaum, around the group of 10 cities known as the Decapolis. But apart from that, however, he, he has enjoyed nearly three years of tremendous celebrity. And now he says, yes, I, I am the Messiah, but I want you to know I'm also the suffering servant. And he gives this immediate prophecy. Because this, as he speaks here, is a word of prophecy. Jesus speaks the word. I'm going to become the suffering servant of Isaiah. And, and this is not off down the road someday in the future vaguely, but it's starting right now. The third is the importance of the crossroads. Verse 33, but, but turning and seeing his disciples, this is uh, after Peter tried to rebuke Jesus, which is always kind of a humorous thought to me. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. So now he is speaking of the seriousness of this crossroads. I am the Messiah. I am the suffering servant. And this is not a lighthearted thing. This is important. We're going to come back to some of these things a little bit. But in fact, this is so important at this point in time that he's willing to rebuke his friend, probably his best friend in the world, right there in public. This is important. This is about the word. And then fourth, what is the implication in your life? Verse 34, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. In other words, he says to them, all of these things I'm talking about, this has implications for your life as well. So now look at the crossroads here in this, in this first Roman numeral. One is Christ as, is the Messiah. Uh, two, he's the suffering servant, this word of prophecy. Third is, is, the, is of the up, up, utmost significance of the authority of word of God. And fourth, it has personal implication in my life. Now, now if you will, I want to show you how this plays out in the 10th chapter of Mark. And we're going to come back to all of these things in a little bit and, and tie them. They're all going to weave together, you'll see. But I want to show the, you the importance of this Roman numeral. I want to show you the four points of the crossroads here in Mark chapter 10. So I'm going to begin reading in verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus walking ahead of them. And they were amazed and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, that is he, that is Jesus, began to tell them what was to happen to him. So he's repeating the same thing two chapters later saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Now, now I want you to look at the words here, uh, because remember, what was the ratio in the first passage uh, as far as terror to blessing goes? 
Right, it was right, the ratio was three to one. Now let's look at it again, starting in verse 33. He will be delivered over to the chief priest. That means handed over. He, they shall condemn him. They shall deliver him, rejected yet again, over to the Gentiles. I mean, what's the worst conceivable thing that could happen to a rabbi? Well, that would be that the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem would hand him over to the Gentiles. They shall mock him. They shall spit on him. They, shall, they will flog him. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So now it's, it's seven to one, terror to blessing. And Jesus is again emphasizing the prophecy of the, of the suffering servant. So now what do these four add up to? Jesus is speaking here of a crossroads of which he is fully aware. He's fully aware. Jesus was not some pathetic blind victim. He knew exactly what was about to happen he understood it from the eternal perspective, and he says to them, Let, let's settle this thing. Who am I? Okay, well, you're the son of God. Right. Now, do you understand the implications of that in terms of, of, of what's about to happen next? I'm going to be killed, and it's going to be really, really horrible. And next, do you understand how serious this is? This is the most important thing in the universe. It's the most important thing in history. He says, this is the crossroads, not just of my life, not just of Israel, but this is the crossroads of all of hum human history. This is the single most historical event of all time. And it starts right now. So he says, now, now look at it, north, south, east, and west. I'm the Messiah. I'm going to suffer. This is so important that I won't have any lighthearted conversation about it. And there's a cross for you too. Now, now why would he go through all of that at the point of the crossroads? I mean, he's just starting into the crossroad here. Uh, why go through all of that as, as he starts into these crossroads? I mean, he could spread it out. He could talk about it as time goes on, but... You know, depending on how serious the situation is in leadership, you have to make it clear to the people what's going to happen. And Jesus is making it very clear from the very beginning here. He says, I don't want, I don't want any mistake here. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be tortured. I'm, I'm going to be crucified, but I'll rise from the dead. However, before we get to the resurrection, he says things are going to get really horrible here. This is the most important thing that we've ever done. He, he tells him, forget about raising the dead, forget about walking on water, forget about multiplying plying bread and fish. Uh, this is the real thing. Now this ministry changes. The, the goodies are over. You've eaten all the candy. All of that is over with. And, and in fact, you may not realize this, but in the Gospel of Mark, from this moment on, Jesus never works another miracle. Now it's over with. Now we, now we go to Jerusalem. All right, that, that's, the, that's the first one, Roman numeral one. We're, we're going to see this from three different perspectives. Roman numeral two is Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. So turn to Mark 11. Uh, I'm not going to read the entire passage, uh, but we'll read different parts. But, but I want you to notice that, that verses 1 through 11, that's the part where it actually tells of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. You know all about it, you know, the waving of the of the, the, you know, they tear down the palm branches off the trees and then they're waving them in the air and throwing their garments and the palm branches down in front of him, all of those things. Now we're going to read verses 12 through 14 so that it's clear in our minds. It says, On the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, 
he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now, the reason is because uh, we need to understand this a little bit. Fig trees that have, uh, uh, from what my understanding, from what I read, uh, they, uh, fig trees that have retained their leaves throughout the winter ought to have figs too, even if it's not the, the typical season. Uh, and, and by the way, you, you may want to know this. Bethany, they were on their way back to Bethany. Bethany is just a very short walk over a hill from the, from the Temple Mount. And, and right there uh, next to Bethany, there's another village that we call Beth, Bethpage or Bethphage, depending on how your translation, which that means house of figs. So as you walk along and the road leading to Bethany, you go first past Beth, Bethpage, the house of figs. And, and even today, if you were to go to Jerusalem today, even today, there's this huge, massive fig tree that's there at the gates of that city. Now, it's not the one that Jesus touched because he killed that one. So it's not the same one. But so Jesus comes walking along this road and sees a fig tree that has retained his leaves over the winter and, and, and ought to therefore have figs even though it's not the usual season for figs. Well, there are no figs, and Jesus curses the fig tree. Now, that's an odd story, right? Why does Jesus do this? He does it because he's showing a prophetic word. This is another prophetic moment about having the appearance of health and life and productivity while you have the reality of death and fruitlessness. He's talking about the appearance of, of, of being fruitful and healthy, but in, but in the inside, it's not, that's not what you are. So now, now look at verses 15 through 17. That tells us of the cleansing of the temple. We all know that. Uh, and then verses uh, 27 through 33 addresses the question of Jesus' authority. And those are the four points of the compass here, north, south, east, and west under Roman numeral two. So let's look at them now individually. The, start with the triumphal entry of Jerusalem. It's very interesting here, and we're going to come back to it in a little bit here, but what, what is it that the people are shouting when Jesus comes in to Jerusalem? Hosanna. Well, let me read it, and we'll get all of it in there. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, when you put it all together, what they're saying is, this is going to be the reestablishment of the kingdom of David. That's what they're shouting about. Now remember, what, what was the first question of, the, of Roman numeral one? What is it? Who am I? And as he enters into Jerusalem, what's the first question that has to be settled? The city is answering the same question that Jesus asked his disciples. Who am I? They said, we, we know who you are. You're the one who's going to reestablish the kingdom of David. You're, you're going to set up a Zionist kingdom and you're going to rule right here in Jerusalem. Hosanna, save us now. That's what Hosanna means. It means save us now. Save us now from this Roman oppression. Break the power of the Gentile nations and establish the kingdom in Israel according to David. That's the first question. Then Jesus, right after that, the second point of the compass, Jesus goes from there to the fig tree. And now, as they, after they proclaimed him as king, now he speaks as a prophet. He, he gives a prophetic sign. 
This nation, he says, is like a healthy fig tree with plenty of leaves and no fruit. Speaks as a prophet. Then third, Jesus goes into the temple and cleanses it. Now, let me ask you this. Who goes into the temple? What kind of man rightfully goes into the temple? What kind of man has the right to enter into the temple? Priests. So you have it proclaimed as king, speaking as a prophet. Now he's acting as a, as a priest. And then the fourth is the question of Jesus' authority. Look at verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? So they're, they're now asking Jesus the same question that Jesus asked the disciples of, at Caesarea Philippi. Who am I? What do you think? Who do you think I am? This is what Jesus asked. He arrives in Jerusalem, and the religious leaders basically ask him the question, same question. Who do you think you are? Who, who do you think you are? Who are you? Verse 29, Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now look, I, I know, I know this, is, this is a little awkward, the structure of this, but just stay with me. They ask, By what authority do you do these things? And in essence, what Jesus says, he says, if he asks about John the Baptist, and he says, in essence, if you can't discern if the Holy Spirit is moving through the ministry of John the Baptist, then you will not be able to discern the Messiah of whom he prophesied. It was John, if, he says, if John was from God, he prophesied about the Messiah. I'm here. I'm here. But if John the Baptist was a fraud and a charlatan, then I'm a fraud and a charlatan. All you have to do is say which one is which. However, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they, they, they say, well, listen, if we missed it with John the Baptist and we admit that we were wrong, then we have to humble ourselves and repent. Well, we don't want to do that. But, but, but if we say John the Baptist was a fraud and therefore Jesus is a fraud, the people are going to kill us. So they say, we, we, can't, we can't tell. And Jesus said, you're carnal men. He said, you don't know which way the wind of the Spirit is blowing, and I won't answer your question. Now, now look at all uh, at the four points then. King, prophet, priest, and a, and a Savior with authority. Comes the one that comes in the authority of the Savior. Now, I just want to show you one thing. Fo uh, following... I want you to see how it all fits together. Because listen, I know the easy way to study a book is go verse by verse. But I want you to see the picture of how things fit together. Uh, the, following the first Roman numeral in chapter 8, look, look at chapter 9 and tell me what happens. Can you do that? Look at chapter 9. What are the first few verses of chapter 9 about? Somebody call it out. Transfiguration. Very good. Very good. That's exactly right. Now look at chapter 12. What are the first few verses of chapter 12 talking about? There, that's right. He tells a parable 
and, and, and we're not going to read the parable tonight. We've, we've talked about some about it already in the past few weeks, but, but he tells a, a, a parable. It's about a man who owned a vineyard and, and he, he sent his servants to claim the fruit of the vineyard and they beat some and killed some and finally the man sent his son and they killed his son. All right, now watch. Chapter, chapter 8 is about authority, about who he is. He says, who am I? And he's a Messiah, a suffering servant, the word of God and the Lord of life. And then that's followed by a revelation of Jesus with Moses and Elijah. And then chapter 11 is all about the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem as king, prophet, priest, and savior. And it's followed by a parable that is a revelation of his authority to claim the expectation from his people. He says, I made you, I saved you, I delivered you. I have the right to eat of the fruit. I mean, why did he strike the fig tree dead? Because it had the appearance of supple youth and productivity, but it had no fruit. It was as good as dead, dead in its sins. He said, I made this tree. It's the same thing as the, as the parable. I made this tree. I have the right to eat of this tree. And this tree won't give me its fruit because it has no fruit. Therefore, it is dead to its maker. So it's dead indeed. Now, 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 are you beginning to see what's happening here? Are you starting to get the drift here? Jesus, as he often did, is simply repeating the same picture over and over and over again. It's like a teacher that's trying to teach children knowing that they won't get it unless he or she repeats it over and over and over again. How many of you have ever, ever had to repeat something to your children? You know, <laughs> yeah, you have to over and over and over again. Uh, before they get it. So the teacher says that George Washington was the first president of the United States and here's a picture of George Washington. Now, I want to ask you a question. Who was the first president of the United States? George Washington. All the kids say they're excited. Now somebody show me which picture is a picture of George Washington and they do it over and over again until they figure this out and, and get it all down. Well, Jesus shows them the same thing over and over and over again. In, in chapter 8, he says, I'm the word of God. I'm the son of God. I have the authority of God. It has implications for your life, and I'm at the crossroads of my ministry. Nevertheless, so that you won't be shaken in, in your believing, come up with me on this mountain and watch this. Boom, the transfiguration. Authority. Jesus standing with, with, uh, with, with Moses and Elijah and the voice of God saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And he's standing there with Moses and Elijah, the pillars of Hebrew faith and culture and tradition. They all speak of authority and there's Jesus, boom. They come down from the mountain and they're walking along. And we're told the disciples are walking along behind Jesus and it says that they were amazed and they were afraid. Now, now, when you read the word amazed or, or astonished, as it says in some translations in the Bible, it doesn't mean like we would say, you know, we would say, oh, I saw a guy walking a tightrope over Niagara Falls. It was amazing. Well, astonished or amazed in the Bible means awestruck. Awestruck. They're, they're walking along after all these things. They're saying, what? What? What is he talking about? Hand her over to the Gentiles and killed. What is, he, what is he talking about? Rejected. What is he talking about? He's the most popular man in Israel. Rise again. What could he possibly mean by that? 
He asks us who he is and we tell him he's the Christ and the son of the living God and he says, you're right. Then he says he's going to die and we say, no, Lord, we want a living king, not a dead savior. And then he tells us we're from the devil. What in the world is going on here? And they're, they're doing all this reasoning and this questioning behind him and, and he, he says, look, I want you to get this. He says, he says uh, uh, there's not going to be three parts suffering to one part resurrection. It's going to be seven parts suffering to one part resurrection. I told you how bad it would be, but it's even worse than you, than you understand. I got to help you see this. But, but at the end of it, I want you to know there's still the resurrection. Now, come on with me into Jerusalem and I'll show you in a way that you won't ever forget it. So he enters into Jerusalem. And what is the fundamental question? Who has arrived? Who is this? And the nation missed it. See, they didn't give the answer that, that Peter did, did they? Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. The nation said, you're the king, the son of David. They saw maybe a little piece of the puzzle, but they didn't understand. They didn't see what Peter saw. They didn't understand the big picture that it's more than just about political freedom because all they wanted was political freedom. So Jesus leaves Jerusalem on the heels of that and returns to Bethany and he sees this lush fig tree full of leaves that should have had figs on it because the leaves are there and he walks over to it and there are no figs and he says, you look just like Israel to me, receive your death. He turns around to his disciples and says, are, are you getting this? Of course they weren't. You know, throughout scripture, uh, it absolutely fascinates me that, you know, God just seems to like sort of like turn the Rubik's Cube, you know, and he says, he says, you see how these all line up? Now watch this. Now you see it. And, and, and then let me turn it this way. Now, now look at that. Let's, let's turn it this way. See that? Yeah, I see it over and over again and over again in scriptures where it just, God just, turns the page, turns the, you see a different view, a different facet, you see it from a different perspective. And, and all right, listen, I got to go on. Let's look at these two before we move on to the third one. First, the cave at Caesarea Philippi, who am I? The Messiah, suffering servant, the word of God, the Lord of life. And he says, I have the right to tell you to take up your cross and follow me. At his entry into Jerusalem, who am I? They say, you're the king, and he acts as prophet and priest and savior. And then he, then he tells the parable which reveals him as having the authority to eat the fruit of the vine. I, I have authority to demand payment from, from Israel. I made you, I, I protected you, I preserved you. I met Joshua at the gates of Jericho. I knocked those walls down. I parted the, the waters. I stood the Jordan River on end. I am the, the son of God, the word of God, the preexistent second person of the Trinity. And, and, I, and you come to me with nothing. You offer nothing. Hence, I will become to you as a judge. It's very strong stuff that Jesus is dealing with here. Who am I? What am I about? How important is this? What will I do and what implication does it have on your life? Now, before we look at Roman numeral three, would you like to just maybe as sort of a side note to, to, to see a very interesting little uh, side light? Would you like to see that? Well, I'm going to show it to you anyway. But, but look at Mark 11, 11. This is what he says here. This is only recorded in the gospel of Mark. 
That's why I want to include it in here. Mark 11, 11. And he entered Jerusalem, talking about Jesus. He entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, it was as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Now look, he, he doesn't cleanse the temple until the next day, starting in verse 15. But we're told here in Mark that he actually went the day before into the temple and looked around. So let's go back to what we taught before at the very beginning of this series. Who can remember all the way back to our first introductory lesson on the Gospel of Mark? For whom was the Gospel of Mark written? What kind of people? Romans. There you go. Very good. You know, it appears to us as we read it that he corresponds Jesus to a representative of Caesar so that in the same way that Caesar would send a representative into a village who would say, I have the authority of Caesar, kneel. And Jesus says, I have the authority of God, kneel. I mean, isn't that in essence what Jesus does? However, if you're on a military or ambassadorial mission for your home government and you go to some remote city before you go into the palace and announce your, your, your credentials before the rulers of that city, what might you likely do? Check it out. Reconnoiter. I just like that word. It's just fun to say. It's interesting that, that the only passage in which Jesus is shown reconnoitering the situation in the temple is in, is in the one written to the Roman gospel. Jesus goes in and walks around in the temple. Uh-huh, uh-huh, just about what I thought. You know, I'm going to come back tomorrow and I'm going to kick up a serious ruckus. But he stands there watching the money changers cheating people. They, they could buy doves anywhere in the market for two pennies and they're selling them for ten. And he says, he looks at that and he thinks to himself, yeah, I've got a su surprise for you tomorrow, buddy. He just reconnoiters the whole situation. He goes back to Bethany and all night long, that's just eating at him. All night long. And he goes back into the temple the next day. Anybody ever heard the phrase, the wrath of God? You know, sometimes we use the term lightly, like, boy, he descended upon him like the wrath of God. Well, listen, it was the wrath of God in the temple that day. Just thought this was a little interesting that he reconnoitered. So anyway, let's, let's move on to Romans numeral three. I want, I want you to stay with me. I don't want to lose you out of this. And, and like I said, it'd be easier to go verse by verse, but I want you to see, get the picture of how this is all put together. So let's see it from a third perspective. We've seen it now, Jesus at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus at Jerusalem. Now let's see Jesus at the crossroads of his, of his own personal destiny. In making a decision at the point of a, of the, of a crossroads of destiny, the, the weight of the decision will reveal the weight of the man. The, in, a, in a crossroads decision where destiny hangs in the balance, the weight of the decision will reveal the weight of the man. Because, listen, anybody can make lightweight decisions. Well, I won't say that because I've known several people that can't even decide where to eat dinner at. You know, so, uh, so I guess not anybody. But you, if you really want to, anybody, it doesn't take a lot of gravitas to, to make lightweight decisions, does it, right? The, the more serious the decision, the greater the man has to be. You, you, and you may say about a decision, well, this is really a serious decision. This is life and death decision. Well, listen, I got to tell you, that's nothing. That's nothing. 
the seriousness of Jesus' decision was not whether Jesus would die, but it's whether he would die for sinful humanity. Whether he would take the wrath of God that has been stored up for sinful humanity upon himself. That's the decision he's faced with. That's why, you know, that passage we started with when Jesus, when Peter rebuked him, the reason he rebuked Peter was because it was a real temptation to him to say, you know, you're right, let's not go to Jerusalem. Why do I have, why should I do this? But he made a choice on that day to say, no, I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to do what's necessary. I'm going to carry out my mission. Let's go to Jerusalem. This is the crossroads that he's faced with. Jesus knew that if he died, he'd go back to heaven. That, that, that's where he had been. That's where he, his, he belonged. His throne awaited him. His priesthood awaited him. He, he knew that. And he counted the cross as nothing for the joy that lay before him. The, the issue was not whether to die. The issue was the weight of dying for all of humanity. This was an eternal, cosmic, supernatural salvation issue. At the crossroads, we see that the weight of the man is revealed. We see that the greatest, most magnificent, most terrible, most horrible decision that's ever been made by Jesus, was, or was ever been made by anyone, was made by Jesus at Caesarea Philippi. When he said, all right, time to go to Jerusalem. Party's over. Let's go do this. I know what's coming. Let's go. What is it that makes a man able to make such a huge decision intentionally? Well, in order to make such a mammoth decision, you, you must be in tune with God. You, you, must, be, you must be submitted and yielded to God. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. We all know this passage, or at least parts of it. It says, Let this mind be in you all, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking upon himself the form of his servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And having been found in the form of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God highly exalted him and gave him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what? It says, let this mind be in you, and all, in you all, which was also in Christ Jesus. What was the mind of Christ? He was humble, was submitted even to death. The, the greater decision a man has to make, the greater the need he has to be in tune with God. Listen, if you have to make a decision over whether to go to, down to Walmart for some milk now or in 20 minutes, you, you, don't, you don't have to be in tune for, with God to make a decision like that, right? On the other hand, all I mean, he might tell you, go now, the price is going to be raised. I don't know, he might. But the, you don't really, it's not, the, it's not a life-altering decision in most cases, right? On the other hand, if you're making a decision to advise your child that you refuse to endorse their, their wedding, you had better have heard from God. You, you understand what I'm saying? The bigger, the weightier the issue, the more you need to know that you've heard from God. The greater the decision, the more in tune you have to be with God. The, 
The, the weight of the decision reveals the weight of the man. In order to make that kind of a monumental decision, you, you've got to be in tune with God. So how can you be in tune with God? Well, you, you've got to be a man that is spiritual or a woman that is spiritual and not fleshy. L listen, the, a flesh man operates out of the flesh part of his life. What do I mean by that? I mean his emotions, his appetites, his desires, things he wants, what feels right to him. However, a spiritual man operates out of conviction. But Jesus, Peter says, this, this is going to feel horrible. Jesus said, but God has said it to me. But, but this is going to hurt Jesus, but God said it to me. Well, nobody likes rejection, Jesus, but God said it. It's time to die. But we can't live without you, but God said it. It's time to die. Oh, no, just would you, let's just stay up here in the highlands. If you go back to Jerusalem, you'll get killed. Don't, don't talk this way, Jesus, but God said it. You're, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You're not operating out of conviction. You're act, operating out of your fleshy man. If your conviction is to obey God, then it doesn't matter how it feels or what your emotions say. You will, in that moment, act out of conviction. If you're going to be in tune with God, then first of all, you must be a man or a woman of conviction. Second, you must be a man or a woman of obedience. And third, you must be selfless. You, you must be a person who can make the decision that is right, no matter how it makes you look or how it makes you feel, but, but you're making the decision that is right for those that are looking to you for leadership. You remember last week, um, I said that, that Peter said to Jesus, you, 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 if you were here last week, you'll remember, but Peter said you know, to Jesus, and we, we read it tonight, don't talk like this. You know, Peter says to Jesus, I rebuke this, Lord, which is kind of funny to use the word Lord and rebuke in the same, same sentence, you know. But, and then Jesus, if you remember, it says that Jesus first turns and he looks at his disciples. You remember that? Remember that from last week? Why? Because when you're standing at the crossroads, you have to measure some things out. He says to himself, I'm about to deliver a karate chop to, to Peter right in the side of his neck. Get behind me, Satan. That's a, that's a karate chop right there. This is his best friend in the world, and he's about to chop him off at the knees. He says, wait a minute, I, I don't know if I can do this or not. This is going to be, this could be devastating for Peter. Then he turns, and he looks at the disciples as if he is looking at all assembled humanity. And he says, I'm not doing what I'm doing to make Peter feel good. I'm doing this for lost humanity. And he looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. You have to not only be a man of obedience and sensitivity to God, but you have to be able to weigh and measure the situation out. How important is this? You have to be a man of conviction, a woman of conviction. You've got to be a person of obedience you have to be a person of sensitivity to God because, listen, it is better to make the right decision that's misunderstood by everybody 
than it is to make the wrong decision that gains applause. Now, now here's one last part on the, uh, on, the, on the compass. First, the weight of the decision reveals the weight of the man. Second, you must be in tune with God. Third, in order to be in tune with God, you must have conviction, obedience, and selflessness. And fourth, in this category, is at the crossroads, a great man makes the decision. It is not made for him. Jesus was not the victim of events. He was not controlled by circumstances or swept up in, the, in, in history. Jesus said, it's time for me to go to Jerusalem. He wasn't summoned. He did not, uh, you know, did not fall in on him. It didn't catch him by surprise. He knew exactly what was happening. All right, now let's look at what's revealed about Jesus at Roman numeral three. He, he was in tune with God. He was spiritual and not fleshy. He acted according to his convictions and was obedient to the plan of God. He was deliberate and not a victim of events. It was a decision he made. It didn't, wasn't something that happened to him. So we see then that in all of these things, in all of these crossroads, that he was revealing himself. The issue at the crossroads for Jesus was Jesus. Are you with me? Stay with me just a little while longer. The issue was Jesus. He says, in these events, there, there, uh, there are no more miracles. No more miracles. We, Jesus, we see, is serious. He's introspective, somber, almost gloomy at times. We see that he's sensitive to his Father. He senses the timing of God, even though nobody else senses it. And he's setting out deliberately to prepare his disciples to go through the worst thing they've ever been through. He knows it's time to move his ministry into this new and terrible phase. And we see Jesus at times as lonely. We see Jesus as having this eternal perspective. It's not about healing this person or even raising that person from the dead. He's moving into the supernatural, long-range manifestation of his ministry as the Messiah, as the Savior of the world. And he is intentional about it, even in the light of the knowledge of the coming events, knowing what it's going to cost him. He's still intentional. All right, we've gone through all the Roman numerals. Now let's tie this package together and then we'll be done. Here it is. At the crossroads of your life, you will be exactly like Jesus was at the crossroads of his life. At the crossroads of the greatest decisions of your life, the issue is not what you do. It's who you are. The issue for Jesus at Caesarea Philippi was who am I? The issue for Jesus at Jerusalem was who am I? The issue in, in terms of making the decision at the crossroads of his personal destiny was who am I? Am I big enough to make this, uh, this decision? Am I in tune enough with God to make this, this, this decision? Am I sensitive to the Holy Spirit? Am I obedient? Do I have the conviction? Do I have the moral guts to do this when everybody around me is saying, this is crazy, you don't have to do this. If you're gonna get killed at Jerusalem, then let's just not go. I mean, the, Jesus, the ministry is just now really taken off. Let's buy a, buy a van and hire a band. I mean, we're just going to, the revivals are happening and the, the, we're going to have bigger auditoriums next year than we do this year. Everything is really rolling along. I mean, really, do, do you think anybody else in Caesarea Philippi is walking on water? Jesus, you're the bee's knees. And everybody around him is saying things like this. 
Even Peter, his best friend, is saying, Lord, if bad stuff's going to happen in Jerusalem, just don't go. And Jesus says, yes, but I've heard from God. I know this is what I need to do, and this is the time. I'm at the crossroads of my life, and history is at the crossroads of its eternal destiny. If I make the wrong decision here, everybody in the entire universe who's ever lived or ever will live is going to die into eternal damnation. Every speck of humanity that's ever floated on the ocean of time is hanging in the balance right now. I've heard from God. I've got to do the right thing. Let's go to Jerusalem. The weight of the decision reveals the character of the man. A cosmic decision requires a cosmic hero. So it's all about the revelation of Christ. Now let's go back to the first question where Jesus asked them, what, what do... Who do men say that I am? Who do men say that I am? Here, here's the kicker. If you settle that question at the crossroads with Jesus, then that will be what settles who you are at the crossroads of your life. If you settle the question, who is Jesus? Then that determines who you are in the moment of decision at your crossroads. Because you say he is Lord, he's my Savior, he has the right to call me to a cross, he is the, the one who rules and reigns, he's the owner of the vineyard who can call upon me to produce fruit and give it to him, he is the one, therefore that defines who I am in that moment of decision. It's, it is said, and this is not scripture, this is tradition, it's a, apocryphal at best, but there's a story told that Peter was fleeing Rome at a time of persecution and that he, he met a revelation of Christ going into Rome. And he said, Lord, is, is that you? He said, well, he, and Jesus said, yes, Peter, it is I. And, and he said, well, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus said, going back into Rome. I'm going to Rome to die. And he said, but Lord, you, you already died once. And Jesus said, yes, but you won't die, so I'll have to do it again. And it said that, at that moment, Peter turned and went back into Rome and was crucified upside down. Now, we know that's, that's an apocryphal story. It's, it's a legendary story. Um, it's traditional. It's apocryphal at best. It's not scriptural, but it is instructional. There's a hymn that uh, we used to sing. I haven't heard for many, many years. I don't know if you've ever heard it. Not everybody, not every church sang it, but the old hymn, asked the question, it said, must Jesus bear the cross alone? God forbid. There's a cross for you. There's a cross for me. There's a cross and a crossroads for every one of us. For every one of us. Jesus revealed that at the crossroads, he revealed that he was the Word, the Son, the Messiah, the prophet, the priest, the king, the authority, the conquering hero, the submitted servant, the suffering servant, the word of God, the man of God. He reveals his ability to be in tune with the father and sensitive to God to make the decision. And he is saying to us now, take up your cross and follow me. 
Can you imagine that moment when Jesus said that to the disciples? Because to us, the cross is something beautiful and something we cherish. But that was not the case for them. They saw the cross as the most brutal instrument of torture that, that the world had ever seen. And when Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me, that was a huge statement to them. That'd be like me saying to you, pick up your electric chair and follow me. You'd be like, what? Take up your cross and follow me. And he said, if you do, I'll reveal through you and in you a manhood or a womanhood that is strong enough to make the same kind of submitted decision at the crossroads in your own personal destiny as I did. But first, settle this question. Who am I? We answer, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And he looks at us and he says, good, good. Now take up your cross, follow me. If that's who I am, then I have the right to call you to pick up your cross and follow me wherever I go, wherever I want you. Take up your cross, follow me. That's a powerful, powerful word that God says, at the crossroads of your life, there had better be a revelation of who I am and there'd better be a cross. If not, you will make emotional decisions and you will eventually wilt. And you won't stand up in the blazing heat. The thing about crossroads, crossroads are where you stand looking in four different directions. And as you stand there, you, you look around and you say, I can go anywhere. I can go any direction. I can go anywhere. And Jesus says, follow me. Follow me. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we all face crossroads, moments of decision, moments when we have to decide whether we're going to do what honors you, even if it costs us something, moments where we have to make a decision whether we're going to do the right thing, uh, especially sometimes when, you're, when we're in leadership. But God, in those moments, we look at your life and your, the moment when you were at the crossroads and we, we learn from that. And God, the most important thing we can do is to settle in our hearts that you are who you are, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, that you are Lord, you are our King. You are, our, you are uh, the, the, the one who speaks prophetically over us. You are our, our priest. You are the, the great authority in our lives. You are our conquering hero. You're the suffering servant. You're the word of God. There's no one like you. And because we know who you are, Lord, that determines who we are. We are children of God. We are followers of Christ. Wherever you go, that's where we want to go. Where you lead us, we will follow. So, Lord, we, I, we take up our cross. Help us to do it every day, Lord, to take up our cross, which means that we're dying to ourselves. We're placing ourselves on the instrument of execution. And we're following you and doing whatever you say. That's the only way we can honor you. And I pray you'd help us to do that every single day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.